This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. And welcome to episode 45 of the Three Lions podcast. My name's Russell Osborne. Still, no men's senior games to speak of yet. I'm getting a little impatient now. Thankfully, not long to wait until we face the Czech Republic at home and Montenegro away. Now, the Lionesses have been in action, though, in the annual She Believes Cup. We'll look back on that very soon with Rich Laverty. If you've not heard the last episode where we spoke with Cam Melling from EnglishPriorsAbroad.com. It's still available to download, stream, listen to, whatever you do. Not a huge amount been going on, but we'll try and recap what has. Regarding those two Euro 2020 qualification games later this month, Gareth Southgate will announce his squad on Wednesday the 13th of March. The possibility of a few new names in it, I'm sure. Reese Nelson, Declan Rice, Phil Foden... We'll take a look at that squad in the next episode. So, Montenegro. Tickets went to a ballot. I kept my fingers crossed, but it wasn't enough. Only 650 tickets were made available for England fans. Apparently, 2,700-odd registered interest. It is what it is. Well, that was my initial thoughts. I missed out by a couple of caps, fair enough. My intention was, however, to travel and see what happens. Like many others, I'd paid out for flights, car hire, all that sort of thing. But subsequent flight amendments meant I was going to miss my connecting flights back home. Cut my losses, knock it on the head. Gutted. As then, I got a ticket on the waiting list. Couldn't make it up. Had to decline it, but I did try and emphasise that I wanted it to go to someone on a similar amount of caps as myself. So hopefully someone has benefited from it. Then, just to rub it in on the same day, I see that Sports World, the FA's official travel partner, began selling trips plus tickets for 329 quid to travel club members. Personally, I'm not sure this was the best thing to do make this public. Sports World are selling their allocation of FA tickets to any travel club member, be it those on minimal caps or those that just missed out, or basically those that are prepared to shell out for it. I think it would have been more of a positive action to offer those tickets to those that marginally missed out on the ballot cut-off mark. The loyal ones, the ones that spent weeks out in Russia last summer supporting the team, causing no trouble whatsoever. Just a thought. It does mean that still, those that are travelling without tickets remain without tickets. Also, I don't often get on my soapbox, but I don't know how the communication works between relevant FAs. But I think, had supporters been made aware of the renovations going on at the ground and the reduced capacity when the draw was made, then there maybe wouldn't have been so many supporters booking flights to simply go and watch a game in a bar as it would appear tickets to sit in the home end need to be accompanied by a form of ID, and a British passport won't be accepted. I know it's easy to say in hindsight, but every time a match is announced, the first thing we as fans 
should be looking at is the situation of building works of stadiums, or indeed, what nation's stadium bans are at, a la Croatia, last year in the Nations League. But people shouldn't have to investigate these things. They should be almost ready to be told to us. Anyhow, those that were lucky, a tenner for a ticket, good work. Now the Young Lions are in action later this month, looking to secure a place at this year's under-19 Euro finals in Armenia. We play three home games in the elite round, 20th of March against the Czech Republic, Greece on the 23rd and Denmark on the 26th. All of these take place at St George's Park. Sadly though, all the games are by invite only if we wanted to see them. Right, let's catch up with Rich Laverty, who's been watching the Women's She Believes Cup with interest. It is the last tournament before the World Cup kicks off in June. Now, I wasn't aware that the She Believes Cup is only four years old. Seems like it's been around for much longer than that. Began in 2016, always hosted by America. They've won it twice, France the other, and the closest the Lionesses have come was last year's tournament when they finished as runners-up. Rich, we last spoke after the the World Cup draw had been made. I believe that was, was that November, December time? Yeah, start of December. See, how have you been since then? I've been good, busy. Second half of the season always gets very busy when Champions League comes back and teams go into the FA Cup and you've got the World Cup build-up. So, um, yeah, it's busy now, but um, that's, I quite like it that way, so not too bothered. Good. When we last spoke, did you envisage what would have happened this past week in the She Believes Cup? Did you think that was possible? Probably not at the time. I mean... When I saw the squads announced, I thought maybe we had a chance. Japan took a very experimental squad with them. They took a lot of young players, um, which I think showed in the performance um, for Japan last night. USA, I think you always make the US the favourites for these kind of things, but you know, even there, they're having their, their struggles at the moment um, in terms of, I think, really working out what their best team is at the moment. And Brazil are a very... Unfortunately, Brazil have underwhelmed for quite a while now, which is a shame, really, because you always think of Brazil, you know, the really sort of flair players and some of the great players they've had over the years, both sides of the sport. Um, they haven't really kicked on. They've fallen behind the top group. So, look, it's great to win it. I said it last night. Winning breeds a winning mentality. And it's something England, again, in either side of the sport, haven't really had in terms of just getting your hands on a trophy. So it's good from that point of view. I'm sure there was a lot learnt for Phil Neville. I think there's still a long way to go. I think the team still has issues, but there were certainly things that were a big improvement on some of the performances at the end of last year. I think Phil Neville, the way I kind of read into it, and this is sort of immediately after the Japan game, he's played it down a bit, hasn't he? Mm. He's yeah, not, I think he's that's set his expectation about. levels. Yeah, I mean, he's not daft. You know, he'll have seen, you know, that certain teams were approaching it differently. Japan went there, like I said, with the intention of 
experimenting a little bit, giving some of their younger players a chance. And Phil's not daft. He'll know that when we play Japan in June, it'll be a very, very different Japan team. And the USA, they always turn it on in major tournaments. So I think he said it was a, a step up the ladder, which it is. But, you know, he's not daft. He'll know there's still a long way to go. And you mentioned there, of course, we play Japan in the World Cup alongside Argentina and Scotland, isn't it, I think? Mm, it is, and yeah. That's come June time. Do the FA deserve the credit now for appointing Phil? Because that's, that's almost a year on now and he's he's brought a trophy home. Yeah, I think it's a difficult one. Whether they deserve credit, I'm not sure because... I don't think it was ever intended he was going to be appointed. You know, it was basically everybody else either pulled out, didn't want it, and they were kind of left not with any options within the women's game almost. And I think they went after a profile. I right. genuinely believe that. Whether or not they did or not, I think they thought, right, look, all the top targets have gone. Let's get someone in who's young, ambitious, but, you know, he's going to raise the profile, which Phil Neville would do and has do they deserve credit? I mean, look, if he wins the World Cup or something, it'll look like a masterstroke. But yeah. there's a long way to go still. Like I said, the team, there's progress in certain areas. But I think we've also gone a little bit backwards in certain areas as well. And there's certainly issues that still need ironing out a little bit. So it's going to be interesting. I'm still, I'm still not sure where we really are in the pecking order. To be honest, I think we've got every chance. I think the World Cup is wide open, but we've got four more friendlies left. And I think it's really important in those that we start seeing the, the little negatives that are there that have been there for a while now. That's when we need to start ironing those out now because we didn't at She Believes. They were still there. Issues from the Sweden game at the end of last year, they were still there at She Believes. So we need to, if we can get rid of those, and attack like we did at She Believes and be as clinical as we did, then we've got a chance. When you say the issues, are we are we looking at sort of the, the back, the defensive side of things? Yeah. I mean... Did we miss Millie Bright? Yeah, I mentioned this on Twitter that we haven't really had the so-called first-choice back four together at any point under Phil Neville. But I think it's difficult because under Mark Sampson, it was such a kind of a defence-first attitude be solid at the back and then just take your chances England would never win playing great football it was very direct it was very physical and Phil has opened it up a little bit more he wants them to get on the ball he wants them to express themselves play good football and when that happens you're going to get opened up a little bit more you're going to leave yourself a bit more room and they have to get used to that but it just doesn't look organized and particularly from set pieces I mean we conceded from a corner against Australia against Sweden, again against the USA at the weekend. There that you know, if you go to a World Cup and you can't defend set pieces, you're not going to get very far. Yeah, it, it's definitely the back. In attack, it was worrying against Sweden because they didn't look like they could defend, but they didn't look like they could attack either. She believes it was much better. The passing in the final third was better. We were taking our chances. We were creating a lot of chances. So from that point of view... It was very positive, but there's still issues at the back, definitely. And I think passing from the back too. I think this, there's a few players that gave the ball away a lot, put us under pressure. If we can sort that out and just become a little bit more solid, I think at the other end of the pitch, we're definitely in, going in the right direction. Yeah. And mentioned there, no Millie Bright, no Jill Scott as well. Is mm-hmm. is it going to give 
give Phil Neville some headaches when it comes to the, uh, when it comes to picking his squad. I know he's, as he said, he's got four friendlies to, to pick and choose, but he's gonna, gonna have to scratch his head, I think, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, I, he says there's 23 spots up for grabs. I mean, in reality, that's not the case. You know, he'll have a very, very good idea of what his squad is going to be. I think, I don't expect it to be too different come June. I think Jill will come back in. Millie Bright will come back in. Possibly Jade Moore will come back in. And I think that'll be it. I don't think there'll be any other changes. Right. I think the goalkeepers, I think the majority, you know, if you're picking these players regularly now, you're not going to make major changes three months before a tournament. So I think the ones that are, that have missed, she believes, that are regular first-team players, they'll come back in, and I think it'll, that'll be that. And with the the four fixtures before the World Cup, Canada, Spain, Denmark and New Zealand, this yeah. is now really where he's going to have to think about a a proper start in 11 because he, he chopped and changed around. Just, I guess, experimental in these three games. Um, but he's got to think about now what his starting eleven is going to be, hasn't he? Yeah, I think I think we got glimpses of what his starting eleven will be at She Believes, but I think it was good that he gave every player an opportunity. I think Carly Telford's is number one. I think we've seen that. I think we probably know when everyone's fit what his back four is. I think there's definitely a position open in midfield alongside Kira Walsh because there are so many injuries in there. Everyone's got a chance at the moment. I think Nikita Paris will definitely start. Ellen White will definitely start. Beth Mead certainly did herself no harm, as she believes, with Fran Kirby probably starting in the number 10 role. There's probably only one spot left in that attack for someone to start, and you've got Tony Duggan, Beth Mead, Rachel Daly, Georgia Stanway. And I think um, Beth Mead probably did herself a lot of good in that tournament with the goals she scored, so... I think we probably know maybe seven or eight of the starting eleven. I think there's a few spots still to play for in those four friendlies. Yeah, let's just quickly go through those three games. We started in Philadelphia against Brazil, one nil down, and then two two cracking goals, wasn't it? Ellen White and Beth Mead. Beth Mead's was uh, scrutinised quite a bit, wasn't it? Was it a shot? Was it a cross? But uh, it was a great effort anyway, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I said at first it was a cross. Part of me still believes it, but Beth's come out and said it was a shot. And if she says if she says she meant it, then I'm happy to go with that. It was a if she did, it was a fantastic goal um, and good honour because Beth, I think Beth needed that in an England shirt, and and she kicked on with that against Japan. Brazil, it wasn't the greatest performance, you know. Like I said, there were some glaring issues at one end of the pitch, but we got the win, and and it was a good springboard to, to go into the USA match because you want to win your first game. It, it is similar to a World Cup in, in the way it works. You play three games in very quick succession and if you don't win that first match, it, it puts you on the back foot so quickly. Yeah, I sort of educated myself in my uh, American geography because I didn't have a clue really where uh, where some of these places are, but it's going to um, the travelling they had to do is going to mm. be similar to that in France, I guess, because they had to travel a fair distance to to Nashville for the USA game, which that was the draw, where ended two all. Steph Houghton's free kick was that a training ground one, where the the American girl came out and they were all around the ball and, and Steph Houghton curled it in, and then Nikita Paris scored to go two one up, didn't they? 
Yeah, the USA game, weirdly for me, was probably the most disappointing, despite the fact that we drew. You know, we didn't create a lot of chances. The one really good piece of football we did was the second goal. It was really the first time we got the ball through the middle into Frank Kirby and over the top into the strikers. The free kick, Steph's a good free kick taker. She's always been a good free kick taker. I doubt they worked on it because it was an indirect free kick. I don't think teams practice indirect free kicks too much, but um, Steph's always been naturally a good free kick taker. But that was the game for me defensively that bothered me the most because we conceded from a corner because we looked shaky every time a cross came into the box and that worried me a lot. I mean, the second goal that the USA scored from a corner was, I'm not sure how you describe it, but it was pretty shambolic. And that's certainly something that needs to be worked on because there are, you know, there are things that look good. We, we are clinical. We are scoring goals. We are playing some good football. But it's interesting because under Mark Sampson, it was the complete opposite. We went into every game saying we can win this because we can defend, because we can keep a clean sheet. It was at the other end. We just couldn't score goals. Yeah. And now it's going the other way. You know, we're scoring. I mean, Japan last night, second half, they brought on a few of their bigger players and, they could have scored three goals in the second half if they'd have been clinical. Um, they created enough chances. They were playing it round England like for fun, really, in the second half. But, you know, England did well, to be fair. They kept their shape. Carly Telford made a few good saves. But it's just that lingering feeling that there's still, still some things to work on. Yeah, that game you just referred to, that was in Tampa, wasn't it? 3-0 against Japan. Three first-half goals from Lucy Staniforth, Karen Carney and Beth Mead. Beth Mead with her second goal of the uh, the tournament. Would she, would she be England's player of the tournament? Would that be a fair, fair assumption? Yeah, I mean, in terms of her impact in front of goal, Beth had a big impact during the tournament. I think, for me, Kira Walsh was the player across the three games that was concerning. In the first game... She struggled a little bit um, on the ball. She was caught in possession a few times, but against the USA, she was very good. And against Japan, she was unbelievable. You know, she's still so young. She'll go on and be a, a fantastic player. Certainly Kira, yeah, Beth. You know, Leah Williamson played so well against Japan last night. There's not a player I look at and say they were bad. Carly had two good games in goal. Lucy Bronze is Lucy Bronze. You know, Steph did well, Abby McManus did well, Greenwood did well, Stanley Ford scored last night, Ellen White scored, Jodie Taylor got two assists last night. So, of the players that kind of played regularly, there's nobody that, you know, you look at and thought they might have blown their chance. There were some that were better than others, but it's good to see so many players having a contribution so close to the World Cup. Would it be fair to say that maybe Frank Kirby wasn't as, what the word would be, I don't know, we've seen a score in the past to not get on the score sheet these last three games to not have as much as an impact. Fran's a really Fran's probably the most interesting talking point of this team because she's playing the number ten role, which is not a role she's ever really played. It's not a role she plays at Chelsea. You rely on getting your number ten on the ball. And the first half against Brazil, we didn't do it. And the second half we did, and Fran was superb. She was absolutely fantastic. She was running at players. She was setting chances up. You know, she got, she got well, technically she got both assists in that game. And then she got the assist against the USA as well. But the problem is when she's not on the ball, she's very quiet. 
when she is on the ball, she does something. And that's exactly what you get with someone like Frank Kirby. But what was interesting for me is we've played this 4-2-3-1 pretty much every game under Phil Neville. And I think a flat midfield two leaves you so open. Teams find that space in between midfield and defence. And we've seen it time and time again. And last night he went with a three. And Kira Walsh sat a little bit deeper. And those spaces disappeared. And then half-time he changed it, made a few subs, went back to a 4-2-3-1. And straight away Japan were always finding a player in the lines between midfield and defence. And for me, it's so obvious England look more balanced and they look more defensively solid with a midfield three. But to do that, Frank Kirby's position has to go, and therefore Frank Kirby has to go. But to drop someone like Frank Kirby, you know, it's, it's a massive decision, and, and it's nothing against Fran. She's just the unfortunate victim of the fact that the way we play leaves us very open. And I think going to a three would, wouldn't solve it. You know, there's still issues, but it would help. But I don't think he's going to do that because it would mean dropping Fran Kirby. And I just don't see that happening. But Fran's very interesting in this team because, like I said, when she's on it, she's possibly the most crucial player in the team. But when we're not getting the ball into her, very, very quiet and we don't create a lot. Well, as I say, he's got four games to sort it out. Mm. Canada and Spain in April, Denmark in May, New Zealand in June. And then we crack on to the World Cup. America, Japan, Brazil, they'll be a they'll be a different kettle of fish then, won't they? Yeah, I mean look, Japan the Japan lineup in June will be completely different. And when they're passing it around for fun like they do, you know, in the heat on the French South Coast, it'll be so tough for England. And that's why the defence has to, to improve. USA, if we do end up playing the USA, they just have a way in tournaments a little bit like Germany do. Scotland will be tough. You know, they've picked up a few good results this week out in the Algarve. They've got some very good players, some top players, some really good young players as well. So that won't be easy. Argentina have had a difficult week. They've, they've lost a few games this week. They don't. They're probably the team that are going to be bottom of the group. I think it's going to come down to the England-Scotland-Japan matches for where England finish in the group. It's a tough group. It's a really tough group, but... Yeah, Japan will be a completely different prospect come June. Let's speak before then, and we'll uh, maybe after the uh, after the fourth New Zealand friendly and see where we stand then. As always, thank you very much, and uh, yeah, we'll speak again. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks to Rich Laverty there, and well done to the Lionesses. They've got four friendlies coming up before the World Cup in June. Phil Neville, four more opportunities to tinker with that squad until they go to France. Right, now, time to go back in time. It's time for one of our lookbacks. I think you're going to like this one. Now, it's not often that I'd refer to a friendly as a game to look back on, especially those under Sven Goran Eriksson. But one in particular does stand out. 
One, that when I began to research it, couldn't believe it was so long ago. The date? Saturday the 12th of November, 2005. The venue? Stade de Genève in Switzerland. The opposition? Argentina. Now, the sides hadn't met since the World Cup group stage three years previous under the roof of the Sapporo Dome when David Beckham's penalty divided the sides. This time, both sides had qualified for the 2006 World Cup. England topped Group 6, going through alongside Poland, but had seen off Austria, Northern Ireland, Wales and Azerbaijan in the process. Argentina went through in second place in the South American group with the same amount of points as Brazil, but the Brazilians top by virtue of a superior goal difference. With many factors surrounding this fixture, either on or off the field, it always has a heightened importance. And this was the 15th and most recent time the two sides have met. As I mentioned, the game was played in Geneva in Switzerland, where 29,000 predominantly English fans attended. Refereed by a Swiss man too, Philippe Lubert, this was always going to be a game with a little needle. England lined up as follows. Paul Robinson, Luke Young, Rio Ferdinand, John Terry, Wayne Bridge, yes, Bridge and Terry in the same side, Frank Lampard, Ledley King, David Beckham, winning his 86th cap and 50th as captain, Stephen Gerrard, Wayne Rooney and Michael Owen. Argentina featured many household stars of their own. Javier Zanetti of Inter Milan, Juan Roman Raquelme of Villarreal, Esteban Cambiasso, also from Inter, a young Carlos Tevez, who was playing in Brazil for Corinthians, and Hernan Crespo, who was well known to the English supporters, as he was plying his trade at Stamford Bridge, Chelsea, at the time. Kicking off at 5.45 local time, England in white shirts and navy shorts, Argentina in the opposite, navy shirts and white shorts. The game got underway with England thinking they had had the most glorious of starts, Michael Owen having a header ruled out for offside. And shortly after, Paul Robinson was called into action, saving from Raquel May, and in the 12th minute, it was the same player who supplied a free kick that Crespo put away, but was disallowed for pushing. Yellow cards were shown to both Luke Young and Walter Samuel for fouls, before Rooney hit the post from an exquisite pass from Gerrard. But it was the South Americans that got the opener, just when England had begun to get a foothold in the game. Wayne Bridge was beaten by Rodriguez, who crossed for Crespo to tap in from three yards and make it 1-0 after 35 minutes. One of them is Tevez here. Rodriguez is outside him. There's Rodriguez. Takes on Bridge. Right at, oh, it's going to be a goal! Ehrman Crespo has done it for Argentina, the Chelsea man! After hitting the post earlier and having a superb first half, Wayne Rooney, four minutes after Crespo had scored, struck inside the box at the other end to equal things up and went celebrating in front of a mass of St George's Cross flags that hung behind the goal. Oh, Beckham with the flick on. Rooney! England have equalised and it's Wayne Rooney whose first half performance certainly merits the goal and one number nine here replies to the other. And with that, the sides went in level at half-time. 
The second half saw Argentina awarded a free kick on 54 minutes, lofted into the box by Raquel May for Bayern Munich's Demichelis to head across the face of goal, and Walter Samuel tapped into an open net at the far post. He chips it in, and there's Demichelis, and it's over the line, and Argentina have scored. England pushed and probed as the half went on, but it wasn't looking likely. Ericsson made changes. Joe Cole came on for Ledley King, enabling Gerrard to move into central midfield. And with 10 minutes remaining, Peter Crouch came on for Luke Young, who would never wear the three lions again. Lampard went close with a long-range effort. Beckham tried one of his trademark free kicks, but with four minutes left of the 90, Gerrard supplied the cross. Up went Cole. Did he flick it slightly? Didn't matter as Michael Owen was lurking behind and smashes it home for the equaliser, wheeling away to many English fans jumping around in what was the Argentine end. Gerard again from the right-hand side. Joe Cole's up. Oh, and there it is! It's the equaliser by Michael Owen! And England are back at 2-2! Just look at the celebration! And there are scenes of Ray Clements, Gary Lewin and Sammy Lee celebrating wildly. They knew what this meant. Then... Into injury time, Joe Cole picked up possession on the left, ran at the Argentine defence, step over after step over, put a cross in towards Crouch and Owen, who were both on the penalty spot. Surprisingly, it was the head of 5'8 Owen that got there first ahead of 6'7 Crouch. Anyway, it didn't matter, England had won it and became the first side of the two to win consecutive games. Joe Cole! Crouch comes in far side, but then, oh, then we've got it! England have scored again, it's Michael Owen! It's 3-2, Owen! For those that were there, and those watching back home, I can't think of a friendly fixture victory that has been celebrated so wildly. Thank you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed that. If you were at that game in Geneva, drop us a line. What were your memories of it? We'll be back very soon, previewing both games coming up later in the month. Thanks again to Rich Laverty for his time. You can find him on Twitter at Rich J Laverty. As before, please do spread the word, like, subscribe and review at your usual podcast download place. You can find us on Twitter at Three Lions Podcast. Also on Facebook, just search the same. Now we're also on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, TuneIn, and also at www.3lionspodcast.com. Until the next time, cheers. Cheers.